What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, completely different guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's not, and it's funny, and I'll, I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Look, you can All right, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagura. And this is the only podcast that is hosted, I should say co-hosted, live from Death Row. Bill, you're on Death Row right now. That's that's how I'm talking to you. That's exactly where I'm at. St. Quentin's Death Row on the fourth tier of East Block, cell 77. Uh, we appreciate everyone, uh, you know, following us on Instagram and Facebook. That is at Death Row Diaries. Find us on Patreon at Death Row Diaries. And make sure and rate and review the show on iTunes. I don't know why, but that's very important. Anyway, uh, today we're going to be talking about the prison yard and everything that goes on there. And that's going to kind of lead into our next case. But real quick, we have a question from Brett in San Dimas who wants to know, this is kind of a weird question, but I guess he listened to the Rodney Akala dating game killer episode. And apparently you mentioned that he was a big runner, like he was training for some kind of marathon in his mind. Uh yeah. <laughs> so how many laps around the yard would make a mile, roughly? Well, it depends on what yard. But if a normal yard, it takes a, a lot, probably about 100 turns. But a Akala, it's not so much how many laps you ran, it's the amount of time. He would run, and this is no exaggeration, because one day I got a time to my was looking up and I saw him running. I took note as soon as he took off. And I watched him and he ran for four hours and 15 minutes straight. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. I mean, I'm a runner and I could do that, but it would be it would be really hard depending on the speed. But making a hundred turns, I mean, the monotony of that, I guess that would apply to everything in prison, but to me that it would be much more hard to run that far you know, with nothing to really look at or anything. Yeah, and there's also the, the, the turning. Because if you're constantly turning, you're a runner, obviously, you know, that really puts a strain on your ankles. Mm -hmm. You're running all one way. And what they do normally, guys, in prison, what I do it is, then I, let's say if I run 100 laps one way, then I turn and run the other way, so it kind of evens it out. Otherwise, your knees start suffering, and so do your ankles. But, yeah, he would run for four and a half hours straight, or four hours and 15 minutes straight, and if you think about that, so I ran a high school cross country and I ran three miles 
and I normally ran at about 15 to 29. So I'm averaging a little bit over five minutes a mile. I was like 14 years old when I did that. So if you're even considering him doing half of that, and he's averaging, as they say, seven minutes a mile, because he was in his 60s when he was doing this. So you, you start thinking how many miles you ran a day. He did it six days a week. That's quite a, quite a distance. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously if you're doing that, uh, say you're going clockwise, yeah, the next day you want to run counterclockwise so that your, your muscles balance out and everything. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what that's how long he ran for. I couldn't tell me any less, but I could tell you definitely he ran that long in terms of the, the length of time. And um, it was actually interesting that he's aged from San Dimas. I used to actually run San Dimas before – I'm sure it's changed now, but 45 years ago, I used to run what's called the San Dimas Course by Pudding Stone. And I would run all up those hills um, years ago. So kind of interesting. Give me a flashback there for moments. Oh, yeah, I've been out there. I saw uh, I saw a Koi dog out there uh, at a party that's a half coyote, half domestic dog. And everyone was trying to pet it because it had crazy eyes, and I had to tell them to... Get away from it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, so next episode, we're going to be talking about the Grim Sleeper, this weird serial killer guy. But in the meantime, I wanted to learn more from you about the prison yard because it tends to come up in, in almost every case we discuss. So first of all, you don't have to go out to the yard, right? Correct. If you'd like, you can stay in. They run yard practically every day, but if you're afraid, you have problems, or whatever the reason may be, you can stay in this four by nine and a half foot cell, which is really a, a stone coffin. But yeah, you can stay in. And when are you able to go out? Like you personally are in good standing in the prison and everything. So what options do you have for going outside? Well, before COVID, I went out every single day. You know, they, they call morning yard at 6 a.m. in the morning, and I would basically just go outside every day. And that is, uh, you mostly lift weights out there? Well, I used to. There, there are no longer weights in any of the California prisons. There are bars for dips, pull-ups. You can do a natural body weight. You can run. But in terms of weights, they went away in 1998. Is there a particular reason for that? Well, I mean, it's, it's an ignorant uh, point of view, but I'll tell you what it was, is you know they, they had some guys that had injuries, so they thought the cost of for repairing these guys' arms or chest muscles, pictorial muscles for tearing them when they're lifting weights, you know, was kind of a waste of money. But the opposite has been is that the prison now is turned into a medical facility because guys don't work out. When you're lifting weights, you're, you know, you're, you're really pushing yourself, so you guys stay in better health. But now, uh, I would say that 95% of the guys in the yard are not in good shape. The, the 5% are, you see the predators out there. It's just turned into a completely different ballgame out there. Uh, but there are a lot of guys that are in good shape. But as I've always told you before, it doesn't take a guy who's muscle-bound to pull out a knife and stab you with it. Anybody can do that. So you don't have to be in shape for that, really. Um, the other thing is that some of the politicians argue that well, these guys are being let out of prison, 
they're huge. They could, you know, grab you. They can take your stuff. And, well, let me ask you this question. What would you rather be robbed by? A big guy with huge muscles or a little guy with a big gun? So I don't know how that, that kind of thinking works for politicians, but it did. And they took our weights. That's fairly preposterous. Although I would think that, because I know you still keep in shape, but I would think most of the guys would just adapt. Like during COVID when there was no gym, you know, I just kind of started doing body weight stuff with squats and push-ups. I read that Mike Tyson, when he was in prison, would do like 1,300 push-ups and sit-ups a day, which to me is insane. I I don't want to get into my amateur personal training, which I'm prone to doing, but um, I guess was weights kind of the, the culture is it? Or why did why did why are guys more out of shape now that they couldn't figure out something else? Well, it's, it's actually interesting you say that because the culture is changing in prison, and what I mean by that is that guys like myself, guys are forty over, they have that mentality. When we were kids, you know, when parents said go play, you actually went out and played. You rode a bicycle, you, you climbed a tree, you jumped off of buildings. You basically had a very physical existence. When I was a kid, there was 32 kids in a class. 31 of them were skinny, and one of them was obese, or as we put it, a fat kid. So, but now it's the opposite. You got probably 22 kids that are obese, five kids that are in shape, and the other ones we don't know what they are. So that culture has transcended into prisons. So all these new kids coming in are 20, 21. They don't have that mentality they've been playing with xbox and all this other stuff and that's what they do so obviously they're not gonna be in that kind of shape so in their minds they don't really work out because it's not really required for them to do that that's interesting how that works but that's exactly why it's done I've, i see these kids that come in and they're not aggressive mentally and i think that's exactly what the prison industry wants they want docile guys who play video games because that's the next thing they'll be giving us is, is tablets. These little like internet tablets that don't get internet, of course. They're these tablets you can play games, video games, and that again is a toy, and it keeps guys in their cells. So, are there actually guys? Because we've talked about, and we're going to go over it again today. But basically, if you're a pedophile or rapist or just someone who doesn't essentially kill other men you're going to have a hard time out on the yard. Um, but are there guys that that could go out without a lot of trouble, but just kind of like a guy that sits in his apartment all day, they just don't have the motivation? Sure, there's a lot of guys. They, other guys don't want to go outside because of the violence outside. They figure that those yards are full of gangs. I mean, there are protective custody yards. Well, there's one major one, there's, and there's one for older folks. But the other yards are all yards with affiliations with different gangs, whether they be Crips, Bloods, Mexican Mafia, Southern Mexican, Northern Mexican, BGF. There's a lot of prison gangs. So a lot of guys don't go out for that reason. They just don't want to deal with the violence. And um, I know they're here for being violent, but there's a whole different ball game when you step out into a yard and you're not going to face someone you can sneak up on. This person actually has a knife in his hand or he's going to dominate you physically. So it takes a certain type of man to want to go outside to a yard. So can you take us through, 
as listeners, you know, none of us have ever been to a prison yard for the most part, although some of the guards do listen. So shout out to you guys. Um, but maybe the last time I, I know recently a few people got stabbed recently, but I'm trying to think like maybe not the most laid back day, but a typical day or a day when people are on edge for whatever reason, like take us through, you know, your cell opens and, and just your experience walking out and, and just what happens in that, in that, uh, hour, I guess. No, we spend about four or five hours outside, but okay. Yeah. So they announced, uh, yard release. And because we're on death row, we're always in handcuffs. An officer comes by with handcuffs. He puts them on your door. And then when a particular yard, let's say yard one is going out, they, the, the officers come on the tears and they find everybody that goes to yard one. And you go through a routine, which is to hand them all the things that you're taking outside. And they go through all the things. There's usually two officers searching everything you're going through everything you're taking outside. Okay, so once they search everything that you're taking outside, which usually you have in a large nylon bag, then you go through a routine of strip search. And what that entails is you remove all your clothes, you hand them the clothes that you'll be wearing, meaning your shoes, your socks, your boxers, and your T-shirt, because we go outside, even in the rain, and we're only wearing boxers and T-shirts until we're on the yard and we put our clothes on that have been searched. So once... We strip naked, the officer tells us to open our mouth, take out our tongue, run our hands, our hands through our finger, uh, through our hair, uh, flip forward your ears so you can't hide razor blades behind your ears. They ask you to, to lift up your nuts, turn around, bend over, and then spread your ass so they can look and see that you're not carrying weapons. They check under your feet. They check your, under your armpits. Once that whole routine's done, they tell you to get dressed, they hand you back your clothes, and you put on your tennis shoes or, or whatever you're wearing, socks, boxers, t-shirt. Once that's done, they ask you to turn around, they, they put steel cuffs on your wrists uh, through a trace lock. They don't open the cell to your cuffs. Once they're locked and double locked, they open the door and they ask you to step out backwards. Because if you step out forward, you can easily kick them. So once you step out backwards, the officers grab the back of the chain of the cuffs, they hold it, and they escort you all the way down to the first tier. Once you're on the first tier, again, they take all your, your items and they throw it through a rapid scan, which is a, a device that's it's like, it's an x-ray machine. It basically sees everything you have, and then they wand you with a metal detector, your mouth, your genitals, your ass, everything, your feet, your everything. They go through your whole program again. Then you're out, you're allowed to walk outside, and then you walk out to the yard. It goes into a sally port, they uncuff you, a door slides open, and you step out into the concrete jungle. That's how you get out to a yard on death row. So you've been going out almost daily for decades have they, you know, loosened up this process at all for you, or is it the same strip search thing every time? This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It is protocol. It is always the same. Uh, I am a high-risk um, death row convict, um, and they treat me like they treat everybody else. 
So once you get out there, per my understanding, people are kind of divided up into racial groups, right? And absolutely, you don't. Yeah, prison is up. Yeah, so everyone's kind of in their own racial groups, and and essentially you don't talk to someone who's not your same color. Is that right? In, in some cases. In, in a yard like the one I go to, there's a lot of gangs. There's, there's a common respect. It's, it's a very transparent, very, a very, uh, it's a mask they wear. Like, they always say, good morning. They, they say it, good morning professionally to everybody. But, yes, all racial groups go do their own thing. For example, um, if it's they first go out, the African-Americans go towards the, the back of the yard to work out in a certain area. Uh, the Hispanics go to the front of the thing and do their their calisthenics or whatever, the whites to do whatever they do. So yeah, they, they group off. But usually, as far as what I'm, I do, as soon as I walk in that yard, I know, unless I'm the first guy in the yard and there's nothing going on, but as soon as I walk out, I know something's going to happen because I can sense it. And I know that, that sounds almost um, like hocus pocus, but it's absolutely true. Now, unfortunately for most of society, um, we've lost that primal instinct because you know we're we're we're, we're educated, we're, we're refined individuals. In prison, you you go back in time to your primal instincts. I mean, you, I'm sure that some of the ladies that are listening they know this. You go out to a parking lot and you have your keys in your hand. You're about to open your car door and you sense something, right? You, you've all done this. Even men, if you're being honest, you sense something. That is that little web in the, in the back of your mind that's telling you something is wrong. When I go up to a yard, I can sense tension. I can smell the adrenaline in people before they act because they get very nervous before. You know, as much as cold blood as a killer to be out there, they're still, they get nervous. And they, there's a distinct odor that follows. So, and there's also other tall tale signs. For example, I am intimate with every person on that yard. And what I mean by that is I'm intimate with their habits. I know exactly what every individual in that yard does and what his habits are, at what time he does them, who he does them with, and why he does them. My life depends on it. So one of the tall tale signs is always see to look or always look to see if whoever is supposed to be working at a certain time see if he's working out. If he's not working out and there's tension in the air, something is up. Then I start checking groups. And if I can't find anything in a group, I start checking individuals. I watch them to see what they do. Another sign, which sounds ridiculous, but it's absolutely true, is coffee. Most guys in prison make coffee. However, if they're going to do something or that group is going to do something, you'll notice none of them make coffee. I know it sounds a little funny, but those are one of them by itself doesn't make the situation clear to me. But several small things make the situation very crystal clear of who's involved, who the other person involved, and usually what's going on or what's behind. So does all all this violence goes down on the yard? I'm guessing for the obvious reason that I'm thinking of is. Is that one of the few places where if someone has a beef with someone else, they actually have an opportunity to make contact with them? Yes. 
Well, yes, we're all together in the yard. It's, it's, it's a huge yard, and there's individuals that are not cubs. So, yeah, and usually these are personal. Sometimes they're not. Um, you know, all the, the, the bad things in prison, gambling, drugs, gangs, all those things play a part on those yards. Disrespect, you owe money. All those things play a part in that game, and they can cost your life. Right, and so that's why just by being a, a child molester, for example, or, or someone that kills children or had killed children, you're you're essentially signing your own death slip if you go out there, right? That's a known thing? Yeah, that, those guys know. There's an unwritten rule in prison. If you're a rapist, child killer or any of those type of guys, you know you can't go to a normal yard. If you do, nine out of ten times in the first 30 minutes out there, you're going to get tagged. It's simple. I mean, it's not really, uh, it's not rocket science. Those guys know, because as soon as you're a child molester or whatever, other child molesters tell you, you can't go out there, they'll kill you. So they sign up for protective custody. In, in, uh, In San Quentin on death row, that yard is yard four. It's a protective custody yard for individuals who are informants, child molesters, serial rapists, serial killers, all of the above. So they have their own creepy yard where they're all kind of in the same standing. Yeah, absolutely. And as the gentleman asked about Rodney Akala, he was on yard four, a protective custody yard with other serial killers. And there was a lot of them out there. Well, you're, you're talking 17, 18, 19 serial killers on the same yard amongst all the other people that are out there for weird stuff. All right. So I'm trying to picture here how one would, would do this. Cause I know there's stabbings. I think you said recently that you were really close to a, a stabbing, which I want to hear about, but I'm trying to picture you're the guy that wants to pull off this attack. You stab a guy and there's gun rails out there and, and towers, right? Aren't you immediately now you, you can be shot by, for, for instigating things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Those guns, they have mini 14 assault rifles and they are 15 feet above us. So there's a gun that picture that the yard being a large, cement cube and it's surrounded by you know walls brick walls and on top of the brick wall there is a large steel gun rail and an officer stands on top of that gun rail with a mini 14 at all times he's watching but of course everybody makes mistakes gun rail officers are cold they go in the little hut they the little uh, shed out there if it's raining they're not always out there um, sometimes they sit down. I mean, you can't stand up the whole time. It gets hot. All these things, people play on that. And I have seen numerous guys get stabbed out there, and no one saw it. I, there's constantly guys getting knocked out and you know left in the ground unconscious, and they didn't see it. Um, it. It happens. Now, usually when something like that happens, other yards or other people stop what they're doing and it gets very quiet out there. 
if the gun rail officer, and, and usually it is the case, he's very alert, notices the shift in the sounds, everything going on out there, everything changes. And that subtle change will give him pause. He'll stand up and look, and he'll see what's going on. But yeah, you can get shot and killed immediately. And actually, I've seen a guy less than six feet away from me get shot in the back of the head and killed right in front of me. A few, a, a series of rather stupid questions, but when you said you were bringing a, a bag out, like a gym bag, like what kind of stuff do people bring out there? What are you allowed to bring? Okay, out? so you take, yeah, you take a, a tumbler to put your water or coffee or whatever. You bring in an expert shorts, a boxer, socks, a t-shirt, um, sometimes sweats because it's very cold. It gets very cold out here. Like these last couple of days when we go out, it, it's under 35 degrees. So guys wear beanies, all the jackets, there's, you know, stuff like that. You can take your lunch out there with you, which I do. I mean, I, I'm one of those guys that doesn't really, I've been here still a long time, Matt. I've been here, I've been in cars for nearly 40 years. Um, I don't ever relax out there, but I understand that's my backyard and I live here. Um, so I take a lunch with me every day and I have my lunch out there and Damn, anybody who screws with me when I eat my lunch, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I know you like the uh, the mackerel and stuff. Uh, so is it, is it true that there are no belts and shoelaces, stuff like that allowed in prison still? No. That only happens pre-trial and in a, in a unit where people that have mental issues are suicide prone stuff like that. Now, I think I have, I have shoes. I have tennis shoes. I wear. Uh, I have a belt. That stuff. No, that's really not, not an issue in this kind of place. This is this is a highly secured institution where death row. We're the highest level of security in the state of California, and um, you know it's 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 a bad place. This is not. Kittyland, this is not one of those places that you read about these memoirs by stars who did six months a year for embezzlement or because they, they put their, their children at USC University and they paid some booster, some money. That, that it's or, or a housewife of the, the New York housewives or some rapper celebrity that gets stuck in. Uh, this, <laughs> this is where bad people go to rest. And you know, all those celebrities you hear about, if they came here, they would be someone's victim. So, yeah, this is a, a serious place for serious individuals. The administration here takes death row very seriously, as they should, and the level of violence on these yards is nothing short of calling these places a killing field. Uh, so I'm curious, because when I watch, you know, there's some documentaries about San Quentin and this is on the, not on the yard that you're in, but the, I guess the more general yard of guys that are, are getting out and they have a basketball hoop. And I know that, uh, the Golden State Warriors, because you're in the Bay Area come and, and there is like a prison team. So I get that. But my question is every documentary I've seen, it's the same B-roll footage of these guys just uh goofing around like they're never playing a game you know it's like a guy that can't shoot and he's always shooting and it bricks and and they're not, you know like it, it's not even 
it's it's not they don't know how to play basketball from what I've seen, and so I don't get how you you go from there into a fully competitive team. Well, well, there's yeah, they show you stuff that they want to show you up in the, the news and documentaries and stuff. But the 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 Warriors, which it's the same Quentin Warriors team, they actually have a very good basketball team. They've actually beat the uh, the Golden State Warriors, I guess, administration or whatever. The, that general manager. There's a very good basketball team here, but actually, but we don't ever see those guys. That's a whole different prison. And I think you know I've spoken before. San Quentin today is more a college campus out there, and we never see those guys unless they're escorting us to a visit. They cuff us. They have double escorts, and they're escorting us down the main line. But no one can get near us because the, you know, the gunners are yelling, "Turn around! Get away! Move out of the way!" death row walking and all of this stuff like you see in the movies. So we never get near those people. On the San Quentin death row yards, you're never going to see footage and film on that because bad things happen out there. It's a whole different place. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 if you saw these yards and the people on these yards, you would be really kind of shocked. No one comes here. This is a probably a dumb question but you know you said that there's informants people you know criminals that are known to be informants and they tend to get found out and like you said they'll have to go into protective custody has there ever been like an informant that that was incognito like an undercover that was that was leading a double life blending in inside the prison you mean that that was a, uh, a law enforcement officer? Yeah, like a Fed that was actually, you know, living the no. prison life. Yeah, that only happens in uh, that only happens in movies. No, most of these guys, at least here in San Quentin Death Row, all know each other. Mo- I mean, I've never been in prison before, but mo- most of these guys here were in YA with other guys. They were in other prisons. So not too many people can come on these yards and guys don't know who they are. Like before I got here, when I got here in 1988, everybody knew who I was already because I was in Orange County for five years. And there's kind of a, they knew. They just knew I was coming. When I got here, they knew exactly who I was. They knew what I was here for. Uh, But nevertheless, I took my paperwork with me. In case someone asked, I immediately handed them that paperwork and said, uh, here you go. And like you've said before, if you that paperwork is almost a passport to be able to go out into the yard without, you know, having a, a death warrant um, if you're a, a pedophile or something like that. Has there ever been a guy that was kind of an enigma, like uh no one knew, you know, maybe he was in for murder or, or something, but just no one messed with him, but but no one ever figured out, like, who he was or, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm picturing, like, a, just a tough guy that no one would want to mess with. Sure. No, there's, a lot of, there's, a few, there's a lot of guys who no one questions them. But, I mean, I know who they are, and they're, happen, they're, they're, they're actually, they're, they're mafia members. But no one asks them questions because it's, it's insinuated. Because when they walk out, the people that greet them, greet them, the type of respect they they garner, the kind of respect that's always given to them, they get a wide berth from people because of who they are. So no one questions them. Um, I've been on these yards long enough. No one questions me. 
I walk outside. I'm not advocating violence or anything like that. I'm, I do my own thing. But they know who I am. And um, I always make it known that um, I'm dead serious. I'm serious as a heart attack when I go outside. And I don't want to play. I don't want to clown around. I want to do, I want to do my thing. I want them to leave me alone. And I comport myself in that manner. I mean, no less than a professional at all times. There are people that do different, the program different. And I, I don't associate with those people because I like being serious. I like being taken serious. I don't want anybody sex playing me or playing around with me because if they do, well, they know it's going to happen. I try it. You know, you don't have to be violent in order to survive here, but you can always insinuate what comes next if they do that to you. And that's kind of a, a master trait, I guess. And I've mastered that particular trait. People know what I can do. I've been in altercations in the past, and I had an exclamation point as to why someone should never attempt to harm me. So that carries over. It's respect that's gained, that's earned, and it's it's the best way to to live a your existence in here without any problems. But um, at any moment, someone can challenge me. Someone can come after me. Someone can maybe not like the way I look. They may not like these the death row diaries. They may they may take this as being uh, crossing the line. But I've always told people, hey, that's your problem, not mine. So, along those lines, what are the demographics that you essentially fit into? You're like an individual, more or less independent person. Um, what what you're dealing with out there are groups of essentially northern and southern Mexican mafia or cartel people, a uh, consortium of African-American bloods and crips, the white supremacists. Let me know if I'm missing something, but how does that all kind of break down? Well, you're right in all accounts. All those gangs exist, and there's a few others out there as well. Um, I don't fit into any of those categories because I am not a member nor am I an associate of any of those gangs. Now, they, they do give me the respect that I've earned because of how I act, how I comport myself, the respect I demand. I mean, I've made it very clear. I'm not in a gang, and I don't go around beating up people or studying people or taking people's stuff or using drugs or selling drugs or getting involved in any of those things. However... It's very clear, you know, I said this before to you, that the most respected people in prison are those who have killed other convicts in prison. Or how much potential you have for that ultimate goal. When I walk on the yard, the kind of potential that I bring for the ultimate goal checks very high on all levels because of the skill set that I have, because of the martial arts and the shape that I'm in and how much training I do out there. It's no secret that I hit that heavy bag that's 200 plus pounds with a four by four in the center of it and I, I leave dents in it. That's not only because I like to work out, it's to show everybody nothing's changed, that I'm still that guy and I'm to be respected and left alone. And that's basically it. You cannot go out to those yards and so I'm sure that at some point someone's going to listen to this and say, oh, see, he's a very violent. No. 
you cannot walk out to these yards and be a nice guy. You know, give everybody roses and flowers and say, these people, that doesn't work in prison, okay? I don't care who the guy is saying that, that's a crock. You have to go out there and demand respect. And that's it. I mean, it's that simple. There's a lot of guys out there. I've been just in this last month that have been stabbed severely out there because they didn't know how to wade through those waters. So meaning if you're if you're put in into prison and you're on that yard and your your crimes aren't problematic in that, you know, it's it's not any of the previous stuff that we've talked about. Maybe you, you killed someone in an argument or whatever it is. Um, but you're kind of an average guy and, and you go out there, will you get messed with, you know, I'm, I'm picturing being a teenager and like 20 year old dudes used to mess with me just because they could. And then I grew up and they stopped doing it because they're kind of cowardly. But I mean, would you just have a problem, uh, just if you, you know, looked at someone accidentally, that kind of thing? I don't think if you look at somebody, I, I think that if you're, let's just say, let's just assume that you, Matt Ralston, ends up in prison for some reason, and you you walk out to the yard. I'm out there, all these other gangs are out there. Usually, because you're a Caucasian, you're a white guy, white guys are going to approach you. They're going to say, hey, what's happening, man? How you doing, brother? Hey, uh, this is our crew right here. We're doing this. Hey, you want some coffee? You want this? They start kind of getting a feel for who you are. Because they want to know if you're going to align with them in the event there's a racial problem. Now, you know, that it's, it's easy to say, well, I would just tell them to go screw off. It, that doesn't happen. You have to be able to wade through those waters and tell the guys, hey, listen, man, uh, I appreciate all this stuff, but I'm doing my own thing. I, hey, good looking out. And, um, you know, I'm there for you guys. But, man, listen, I, I like to do my own thing. That's a really sticky situation. It's not easy to do it. It depends on the prison, depends on what yard you're on. You're on level two, level three, level four. All those things play a part. And it's not easy. Because as I said, usually gangs like to recruit. The best way they know how to recruit is to test you. To see what you're made of. So I can't give you a definite answer to every little question because every prison is different, every yard is different, and all the people in that yard adapt differently, and they take testing differently, too. Right. Yeah, but if I walked out there and was approached by the white supremacist guys, and they, they said, you know, do you need any backup? You know, they're trying to recruit me, and I said, uh, I'm not a white supremacist, and you guys look ridiculous. They would just beat the hell out of me, right? That would not be a good idea. Because um, not just white supremacists or Mexican, every, look, everybody in prison plays that racial game, okay? Everyone, blacks do, whites do, Mexicans do. It, it's the way it is. It's, I don't make the rules, but that's what happens. And you normally don't get too close to people outside your race because if there is a racial situation, it's, you know, it's kind of a screwed up situation if your buddy happens to be an African-American and 
you're in a situation where either you back up your race or you don't. If you don't, they're going to get you. And if you do, well, you just screwed over a good friend of yours. It's just really sticky. Most of the time, the guy who you're friend with is not going to be loyal to you because he has to be loyal to his race. It's just very difficult the demographics in prison. They're nothing like the demographics on the streets where you can just be your friend. You can have different people with different races to your house, uh, interracial couples. All that stuff is frowned upon in prison because just about every guy in prison is a racist, whether he admits it or not. You, you can't help it. Right. Have there ever been any scenarios, and I'm basing this mostly on the movie Blood In, Blood Out, which I don't remember even being very good, but the whole premise was this was a half Mexican guy, but he had blonde hair and blue eyes and, and, uh, he looked white, but he hung out with the Mexicans, but you know, maybe there's a guy from a black neighborhood. Can he, can he just kind of cross over or, or would that be a problem for him at, at that point? Yeah, that's you have 60 seconds remaining. It's actually a very good question. And I'll explain when I come by that unique situation that you're talking about right there. Because it has happened, I've seen it happen before, and actually the head of one of the mafias happens to be, you know, a white guy. So I'll, I'll, um, I'll come right back. Hey, man. Hey. Okay, so I'm glad you asked that question. So for the most part, Hispanic, Latino, Mexican, and white they align with each other. Now, there are different circumstances. Again, this is a lot of, of gang theory here, so bear with me. So if you're a Southern Mexican, meaning Southern California, you align with whites. Now, if you're Northern Mexican, they usually align with African Americans. So, yes, there are many guys that look white, blue eyes, green eyes, Blonde, blonde hair. They look like the poster child for what Adolf Hitler thought an area should look like. But they speak perfect Spanish. Or at least they speak just that slang, which is gang member Spanish. And they happen to be members of a Mexican gang. They call them usually Weddle because it stands for like a white guy. But he's Hispanic. Or he might be a white, but he grew up in that neighborhood, he got jumped into that southern Mexican neighborhood, came to prison, and became the head of a mafia. They don't question that. White, Mexican, they don't question it. It's okay with them. So when you say southern Mexican and northern Mexican, I'm, I, are you talking about the actual country of Mexico? I'm having a hard time with the kind of geography of no. that. Okay, so Southern Mexican means guys from Los Angeles, Riverside County, San Bernardino, San Diego, Orange County, you know, as down south. Northern Mexican means guys up here, San Francisco, San Jose, um, you know, Northern California Mexicans. Mm -hmm. They usually have a different type of mafia. Uh, the Southern Mexicans are a whole different other breed of guys, and they don't mix. They don't put them on the same yard together because they do they're usually trouble right away. Um, but the Southern Mexicans from Southern California, Los Angeles, Orange County, et cetera, they align with Aryans, with whites. When they go to a yard, it's usually the white Southern Mexican yard or, or vice versa. 
So how do is it how the way they talk and tattoos? Maybe how do they know who's who? Well, you can see it. Most of the for the Mexicans have sur across their chest, S U R, which stands for Sureño. That means Southern Mexican, and they're from gangs like 18th Street, uh, El Hoyo Maravilla, La Puente, all those gangs in Southern California. It's on their chest and on tattoos. Or they just claim as soon as they walk to the prison and they get here, other Mexicans immediately shout out to them, hey, who are you? What, where are you? They, they do roll call. They know exactly who the guy is. And as I said, nothing escapes anybody in prison. Before the guy gets here, they know exactly who he is and, he's, and that he's coming up here. And, you know, there's, there's a system of, of communication so when he gets here, they know exactly what who he's aligned with, what gang he's from, what are his politics, and what is his rank. And so what percent of this violence that you're always is reading your book, Escape Artist, which is available on Amazon, you describe that you're you're always hyper aware of your surroundings because there's tension all the time and it could it could pop off at any point. But these stabbings and stuff, I, I know you said you know, gambling and messing with drug trades on the inside and all that stuff. But is this all inside stuff or, or is some of this retaliation for stuff that happened uh, on the outside or in a different prison or, or something like that? Yeah, sometimes things carry over from other prisons, but most of the time it's something to do with happened here. And, and for example, the guy may, may not be involved in gambling or anything, but he may be involved in a gang. He may have made a mistake. Let's say he aligned himself with someone that fell out of favor because he turned into whatever, a snitch or whatever. The guy fell out of favor. See, these gangs in prison are very much like the Italian, the Italian mob. You have these different families. And if one of the families falls out of, or one of the crews falls out of favor, or their captain falls out of favor, everybody in that crew could get had. Well, they can be put in a hat, is what they call it here. They, they put you in a hat. And the guy that you were aligned with two days ago, who was from a different crew, he could stab you. So there's a lot of different scenarios. It's not always one race to another race. Sometimes, and most of the time, it's within the same race. Because unless it's a racial problem, most races take care of their own thing. For example, let's say you're, I don't know any. I'm thinking of a Mongolian guy, okay? So and and someone says, "Hey, he, he stole from me, or he did X, Y, and Z." You can't cross over your white guy and do something to that guy. You have to go to his people, and if it's such a crime or such a disrespect that they feel they're going to lose more from go, for going to war with you or your gang, they'll stab even themselves to avoid a problem. So the, the, the different scenarios, it's just, I've never, look, I wasn't good at taking orders when I was on the streets. I'm certainly not going to come in prison and take a bunch of orders from a bunch of yahoos. It's just not going to work for me. So what is the, if you had to look at it almost like an insurance adjuster, and let's say you're a guy that can handle your business, but you're not like the toughest guy. There's a guy that could probably beat you up. But you're not weak either. You're not prone to getting picked on. I mean, is it safer to join a gang and, and you know, have the liability of being associated with some idiot that's in the gang that does something and now there's a target on your back? Or is it safer to be a, 
a lone wolf who then again is is prone to attack from different groups? Yeah, good question again. But um, being a lone wolf, you have to be strong. You have to be stronger than everybody else. You have to be committed to what you believe in, and you have to stand your ground. That's very difficult to do in a prison setting when you have all these different gangs that group together. And if one guy doesn't like you there, he could politic against you. Because another thing in prison I've been talking about is politics. This is worse than freaking the presidential candidacy, um, the election. All these guys, if they can't, if you're a strong individual, they politic against you to lower your standard or get someone else to do something to you. It's, it's really difficult to be a lone wolf. Now, there are people that join gangs that, just to get along. You know, they kind of hang out with these guys. But at any moment, if you are with one of these gangs, and their head guy or one of their chiefs tells you, hey, we need you to do that. You've been committed. You've got to do it. And I'm never about doing that. You know, I've made it very clear to people. If someone asks me to do something like that, I'm not even going to hesitate to crack that guy right then and there. Because you, I know what's next. The next thing is you. You're next. You're the guy that's going to get killed. So it's very difficult to be a lone wolf. I've been one for a very long time, and it's not the easiest thing to do in the world. Um, I'm glad I have. I have aspirations to be something better than just a guy in a prison cell. So, you know, from artist to author, to writer, to podcaster, these are the things that I strive to accomplish. I could not do that if I was a guy involved in drugs and gangs because my priorities would be different. My priorities is to um, straighten that ship that I screwed up a long time ago and show that I'd be, I'm rehabilitated, that I've educated myself. But at the same time, continue to uh, demand the respect from people on those yards. How, if you were in a gang... And this is just a hypothetical. I don't. I don't know the demographics of every prison, but um, you know, people from Southern California are sent up 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 north to where you are, and and all this different priorities for different prisoners. But let's just say hypothetically, you're a Crip. You're a black guy. You're a Crip, and you get sent to Vacaville, and it's like you're outnumbered four to one uh, with Mexicans in the Mexican gangs. Is that a thing that you got to con- be concerned about or not really? <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. But usually um, it, it depends on what is going on in other prisons with Crips and Mexicans. If there's no problem, usually they, won't, they don't mess with you. But now if you were a, say, a northern Mexican and stuck on a yard with a bunch of southern Mexicans, yeah, you'd have a problem right away. It would be a deadly problem. And that's something that happens. I mean, San Quentin is in Northern California, but San Quentin used to be the stronghold, the hub for most of the Southern Mexican gangs. And the birth of the Mexican mafia started here, which is a Southern Mexican um, car. So Northern California prisons usually have a lot of soldiers from every gang. They usually don't, the administrations here don't usually put, you know, a hundred Southern Mexican, put one lone Northern Mexican out there. They usually even things out. So there's a balance. 
uh, I had an idea. I'm sure it's been kicked around, but you know, you've probably seen the Johnny Cash Folsom Prisons uh, special, and and there's a few other ones. But so, do you get that live entertainment? But <clears throat> I was thinking more on the yard as in maybe almost a, a weekly or daily thing. You know, you're in the Bay Area. There's there's all kinds of comedians that would just go out to the yard i'm sure you know just to just to get the time in or or musicians that are struggling and uh you know jugglers whatever it might be you know maybe as a kind of de-stressor has that ever been considered you know absolutely the mainline you know paul rodriguez the comedian came here as you know johnny cash performed on the mainline for st quentin uh, but on death row, that doesn't happen. No one comes to death row unless you've been convicted of murdering somebody and have a special circumstance and are awaiting your death. Um, unfortunately, they don't really want to uh, give anybody here uh, the time of day. Now, the mainline here, sure, they get all kinds of stuff. They get festivals, they get charity walks for breast cancer. Um, there are a lot of things that happen the mainline which are very good. They're very good for the community, they're very good for the prison culture help guys have some uh, aspirations to become a better person but that is a non-existent on death row um, most of the guys here this is the last stop cool well you know it's always great to get this inside information and as we keep doing the show we're going to get more and more um, but you know I'm always interested in talking about this kind of thing so yeah, this is going to lead into our episode on the Grim Sleeper. Yes, the Grim Sleeper, Lonnie Franklin, super weirdo guy, and we're going to talk about him and and his case and how he ended up in prison next time. So we'll see you then. This is the Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston, and I'm William McGarry. Stay safe and always be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. Thank <laughs> you.